Hey everyone, I'm your host Piers Kicks, and welcome back to Metaverse Musings, which is a research-focused podcast that's part of Delphi Digital. We explore the integral components behind what many believe will be the internet's successor, a virtual extension of the natural world where most of us will eventually live, work and play. To some, it represents our next great milestone as a network species, and to others, it is something to fear. With our guests, we discuss the technology, philosophy and culture behind this brave new world. If you're not yet subscribed to the Delphi Research Portal, then I fear for your soul. You're missing out on the most incisive analysis that the digital asset space has to offer. Seriously, check it out. Nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. This podcast features sponsors and any ads are not an endorsement by Delphi Digital and are for informational purposes only. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Metaverse Musings. I'm delighted today to introduce you to Devin Finzer, who is the uh, co-founder and CEO of OpenSea, uh, a, a company that very much sits at the heart of the entire NFT ecosystem. Devin, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Could you please kick us off by giving us a quick summary of your personal background leading up to crypto? Sure. So I got into the tech scene in Silicon Valley in uh, 2013 when I graduated and started off my career at Pinterest as a growth engineer. Uh, learned a lot about kind of growing consumer startups, got really interested in how people interact with marketplace businesses um, and just really interested in sort of consumer facing technology. Um, I later went on to work at a company called Credit Karma, um, and in 2017 was really when I fell down deep into the crypto rabbit hole. I had followed crypto peripherally, but 2017 was really when I started um, getting really excited and really interested in the philosophy behind it and sort of the potential of this technology to really transform how we interact with digital products. Um, And another thing that was really exciting for me in 2017 was was CryptoKitties because um, that was a project that went out and kind of built this consumer facing application um, that wasn't just sort of a purely financial uh, application, which was most of the stuff that um, had made it to market in crypto at that time. Um, and it really showed that there was exciting stuff that could be done with crypto that that wasn't just purely you know speculation based. It was actually um, real utility, real exciting, fun experiences for regular people. Um, and that definitely um, got me excited about kind of building things in spaces related to what is now called the non-fungible token space. So um, my co-founder, Alex, and I uh, decided to start OpenSea as really this um, project that would embed us deeply in this more consumer uh, layer of crypto and uh, definitely has, uh, you know, I think that's definitely come to fruition um, as like this, this really interesting um, sub niche within crypto right now that has a lot of growth potential. Um, so we're really excited to see it uh, evolving over the last couple of years. For sure. And I suppose the sort of lay of the land back then, you know, you, you mentioned, you used the words, what is now called the non-fungible token space. Could you give us a bit of a color on sort of uh, how barren the space was back then? You mentioned CryptoKitties had uh, sort of, you know, emerged. But um, aside from that, yeah, could you give us some commentary on what that was like? Yeah, well, it was really, um, it really was barren. Uh, I mean, not in a bad way, just in sort of a way that that signified how early it was. But um, the the primary projects that were sort of related to what we now call the NFT space were um, the project called uh, Rare Pepe, which was kind of this extremely early um, digital collectible. Um, CryptoPunks, which was sort of a precursor to CryptoKitties, uh, but it was a pure, pure collectible, pure, you know, what we might now call like a digital antique. Um, and then CryptoKitties was was what brought this to uh, to sort of a broader interest group um, of people in gaming, um, people in the creative world. Um, but but that was what was interesting was that was really the only um, experience around NFTs. So if you wanted to interact with an NFT or buy a, and sell a CryptoKitties, you know, you had to go to the CryptoKitties website, you had to use the CryptoKitties marketplace, you had to, you could use MetaMask, but like, you know, it was pretty much just CryptoKitties, right? And um, what's interesting about that is, you know, you could you could sort of um, play devil's advocate and say, well, what's really different about CryptoKitties than any other you know 
breeding game other than the fact that you know you happen to use cryptocurrency to buy and sell these assets and the truth was there there wasn't really anything different until you had the emergent properties of having these blockchain based digital assets so after CryptoKitties launched, what was really cool was you sort of started to see the emergence of this organic, what um, the CryptoKitties team later called the Kittyverse, um, which was all of these sort of third-party applications built on top of CryptoKitties. And they were, you know, a lot of them were kind of these experimental projects, um, but there were things like Kitty Hats, which allowed you to accessorize your CryptoKitties. There were things like Kitty Racing, which allowed you to race your CryptoKitties. And then for us, we were also sort of this addendum to the Kittyverse, we were another place where you could buy and sell your CryptoKitties in a variety of ways, right? You could auction them off, you could sell them for other tokens, um, you could bundle them together. Uh, but at the beginning, um, you know, we really, really were just a marketplace for CryptoKitties. Um, and gradually, there just started being more and more non-fungible token projects in the space so that, um, you know, this more general marketplace for all of these projects started being more interesting and more exciting to me. Mm. So yeah, you and your co-founder then were sort of quick to see the opportunity and obviously have kind of uh, ridden, ridden this wave. Um, where are you guys at in terms of team size and composition and uh, geographical location? So and can you give us a, a quick overview of what the company looks like in its current state? Yeah, sure. So we're a team of seven at the moment. Um, we're fully distributed, so we're, we're all over the place. Um, we're uh, primarily engineering at the moment, but we are looking to bring on more um, product management and design folks, um, as well as we're, we're bringing on more engineers. Um, and yeah, we've, we've sort of stuck, stuck pretty true to the original vision of OpenSea, which was a very generalized, horizontal eBay-style marketplace, um, and just kind of continued to um, invest in... Uh, what we think is is helping push the the whole NFT space forward and taking this from something that's extremely niche um, to a little more of a, a early adopter crowd, and then hopefully we think over the next couple of years to the more mass market mainstream user. For sure, yeah. I mean, when I started digging in, um, I was really amazed at actually just how entrenched you guys are and how deep the roots really do run, uh, sort of in the NFT ecosystem. Um, I think most are kind of unaware uh, of the true extent of that. So could you please give us some color on, uh, to begin with, sort of the OpenSea API, what it is and how it's leveraged via other projects in the ecosystem? Yeah, so the OpenSea API is sort of a convenience layer for accessing NFT data. So uh, it turns out that um, uh, NFTs are somewhat more complex to uh, access than say a cryptocurrency like an ERC twenty token because with an NFT not only do you have the kind of token itself but you have all of the metadata associated with that token so again if we we're talking about a crypto kitty right you have the um, identifier of the crypto kitty sort of its, its serial code um, but then you also have like the name description image and any sort of traits associated with that crypto kitty so the OpenSea API was built. Um, sort of first for us so that we could actually show every single NFT in our marketplace. Um, but then we made that available to third-party developers who wanted to build NFT applications. So for example, say you're um, a wallet that wants to show the users what NFTs they own, then instead of having to go and kind of figure out where all of the different NFT contracts are, what the metadata is. And there is now a, a standard that we've sort of helped pioneer around how to represent that metadata, but not all projects complied to it. Um, mm -hmm. Then you can you can use our API um, to, to show people their NFTs. And so people have been pretty creative about um, using this as a way to uh, create these really interesting interoperable uh, NFT applications. Hmm. And are you able to give us some indication of um, the sort of extent to which that API is used? Because uh, upon digging in myself, it seemed as though it was essentially everyone uh, building NFT related stuff on, on Ethereum. Yeah, um, it, I'm, I'm not sure the exact number of uh, folks who are using the API, but we definitely have some sort of reputable companies that are using it. So, for example, um, Trust Wallet which is uh, the wallet owned by Binance. Um, Coinbase wallet uses it. 
um, Opera browser and wallet uses it. MetaMask uses it. Um, so yeah, it's really, um, you know, for better or for worse, become sort of the go-to place to, uh, or the go-to API for, for uh, getting NFT data. Now, I will say that this we we don't want the API to be sort of the central point of failure for the space, um, mm-hmm. and it, and we don't really think of it as our as our core business. We think of it as something that's kind of helping push the space forward because ultimately these NFTs are represented on public blockchains, and you know it should be easy it, as easy as possible to get that data in a free way, right? Um, and uh, so we're very much supportive of projects like the graph that, um, you know, make it really easy to access indexed um, blockchain data. Uh, it's just that, you know, it happens to be the case that for NFTs, we're sort of in this um, a little bit of a messier state where there's all of this kind of merging of off-chain and on-chain data. And so this mm-hmm. API layer has sort of become something that's quite convenient for people. Sure. Be that as it may, that you don't want it to be a sort of a centralized point of failure or a core part of your business, recognize that. But uh, what are some of the kind of unique considerations and responsibilities that do come with uh, inadvertently ending up handling a a relatively core piece of infrastructure for this sort of budding NFT niche? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think one one thing is that it's really, um, you know, how to force us to be a little more scalable from the beginning, right? Because we do have all of these API clients that are pulling in um, data, and it's not just the OpenSea web app. Um, it's also um, made us sort of focus on being having really robust infrastructure around indexing and scraping. Um, and so, you know, we do a lot of kind of um, you know sophisticated things around refetching metadata. Um, there's you know there's all sorts of problems that are sort of starting to emerge, which in some ways are good, right? Um, that people are pushing the boundaries of what can be done. But for example, you know, what happens when um, a game item actually changes, right? Like if it evolves or if it, um, uh, you know, has a different state than it, than it was when it was originally created. Well, how does that kind of get handled, right? So mm-hmm. the blockchain, if there's an event on the blockchain that indicates that, then, you know, that's easy to support. But what if the gameplay is actually running off chain um, and that changes the state of the asset and you know people are trying to buy and sell those assets at the same time so you know we have various solutions for these types of problems a lot of them aren't perfect um, but we're all we're sort of um, you know gradually kind of building out this really core standard for what does a digital asset look like right and um, what are sort of the the basic primitives you want from a uh, digital asset metadata standard. Um, and so that's, I think it put us in a, a really interesting position to kind of uh, pioneer that standard, add new things, add new rich formats of data. So for example, we added the ability to have sort of audio NFTs um, uh, hmm. supported on OpenSea and then of course through our API. Um, so it's, I think it's sort of allowed us to um, push the space forward to new types of digital content that people want to represent as NFTs. That's uh, that's really interesting. So you touched upon um, a few manners in which, you know, handling, as I said, a relatively core cool piece of infrastructure has forced you to be uh, sort of a bit more disciplined and perhaps build things in a more scalable way to begin with. But um, what else do you think was kind of different about your approach that allowed you guys to scale to where you're at? Um, well, I think we've always taken a very horizontal approach. So, uh, and you know, not to say that a, a vertical approach doesn't also work, but um, we've we've always designed our platform to be useful for any sort of NFT, right? Whether that's a, a piece of digital art, a game item, an event ticket, um, or you, you know, people have even sold uh, physical assets on our site as well, right? Um, and I think that has really um, been sort of the uniquely defining brand and experience of OpenSea is it's a place where you can kind of discover um, all sorts of different digital things and trade them in sort of the same way. Um, so our user base has really like become accustomed and um, familiar with like the trading patterns that you see on OpenSea and the tools that we provide. And what's exciting is that they can you know, they can participate in all sorts of different markets, um, you know, even if they're not necessarily an expert in that market, right? So if you get familiar trading um, virtual worlds, well, maybe you start exploring 
uh, Ethereum name service domain names and start to be really interested in buying and selling those, right? Or maybe you start mm. playing other games that are using blockchain. So we've we have this nice, I think, um, sort of uh, amalgamation of all of the different projects that are happening out there, and um, that provides this really nice place to explore and discover um, new assets and and things that you might want to trade. So yeah, I would say that the thing is that has sort of differentiated us from um, other marketplaces that are more tailored towards a specific use case is that, um, you know, we've, we've always been about creating this uh, horizontally scalable marketplace. And, and that's mm. really the thing that has always excited us from the beginning is the fact that if you wanted to go and build a um, marketplace for digital assets uh, in the past, right, you'd have to go and integrate with every single um, type of digital asset, right? You'd have to integrate with uh, particular games, you'd have to integrate with mm. Steam, you'd have to integrate with event ticketing systems, you'd have to integrate with, you know, Google Art didn't really even exist, so you, there wouldn't be much to integrate with. But like, sure. now you can just support one or two blockchain standards, and suddenly you have this marketplace that can work. Absolutely. That's um, what you wrote about, actually, uh, the first ones. In your words, I think it was something along the lines of uh, it being a universal digital representation layer, which is yeah. what I really liked. Uh, absolutely makes sense. Um, just jumping back a sec, though, I mean, uh, so Rarible, right, is obviously an interesting example of another kind of more generic uh, NFT marketplace that rose to prominence this year. Its growth was kind of, uh, you know, in part accelerated by their new governance token. Um, how do you guys think about a potential token component of a platform uh, like OpenSea? Yeah, well, we, we definitely thought about it. We're not working on anything related to that at the moment. Um, I think governance tokens as a whole are a very interesting and exciting sort of development in the space. Um, I think the jury's still out on kind of how much they make sense from a, a protocol governance um, perspective, like whether or not, um, you know, people will actually be actively participating and whether or not, um, you know, or how, how valuable governance of one of these protocols is. So I think there's just a lot of, for us, there's a lot of open questions. Um, and our perspective is like, we think the NFT space is early enough that um, we would rather kind of have a lot more flexibility around being able to adapt the product, being able to build really what we think users want versus what, you know, mm -hmm. majority of token holders vote for, you know, it, which is really not necessarily representative of like what our users are doing. Um, and so sure. we think like those experiments are really interesting, but um, the, the flip side is that they, can, on the other hand, be kind of distracting, right? And, um, uh, you know, lead you to, to build a product that is not necessarily what will actually push the space forward. Or maybe it, you know, helps push the space forward in certain elements, but isn't nearly as focused as it could be um, on like one core value proposition. Um, so that's why we kind of haven't um, gotten the governance token route uh, quite yet. Um, but we still think that you know, adding these sort of crypto economic incentivization layers at some point down the road um, is, is definitely like a really interesting strategy. Interesting. Yeah, that's a, a great answer. Being able to sort of um, <clears throat> steer the ship, I think, uh, as, as you guys are probably a bit better informed than most of the token holders might necessarily be on uh, where, where things need to go. Um, Zooming out a bit, uh, sort of looking at NFTs more broadly, if you had to distill the core value proposition of NFTs into just a few words or sentences, what would they be? Yeah, I think it would be around this idea of a uh, common standard for digital ownership, right? So the analogy that I really like to make that I think I stole from Chris Dixon at A16Z was like, we have these... Um, uh, file formats that are just universally represented across devices, across browsers. Um, you know, you can kind of know for certain that when you receive a JPEG, you're going to be able to display that JPEG. You're going to be able to open it up. You're going to be able to edit it, right? Now, that's not the case for digital things, right? If I send, there's no real easy way for, aside from NFTs, <laughs> for me to send you a, a digital thing, right? And so we think that, um, sending a, a digital item and owning a digital item should be as sort of native to the internet as displaying a JPEG. Now, the ramifications of that, so that's sort of a very technical 
answer to that question of the core value proposition. And I think that I think that is sort of the answer is that it's uh, sort of this very uh, ground level uh, abstraction that allows all sorts of applications to be built on top of it. So in my opinion, it's not just about digital art. It's not just about um, like uh, creators. It's not just about games. It's not just about uh, event tickets is about the sort of foundational layer on which all of these other applications will be built. So, um, so yeah, I think that's kind of the way that I would frame it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, super interesting. I mean, it, it's been a, a pretty crazy year for NFTs on, on the whole. Um, obviously crypto arts kind of exploded in a, in a pretty big way and drawn in a bunch of notable traditional artists. Um, Given kind of the insight you have, uh, if you had to guess which other market sector would you say is the closest to achieving a similar kind of um, product market fit for NFTs? I think um, gaming is still one of the more interesting areas and has a really interesting intersection with um, crypto art. So I think if you look at the progress that's been made in sort of the open world platforms, um, a lot of mm -hmm. stuff has really gotten a, a lot better over the last couple of years. So Decentraland, um, which is sort of this metaverse type environment where you can go and create crypto art museums and you know create games inside of this world has has come a long way. Crypto voxels has come a long way. Somnium Space Sandbox. Um, I think those projects have taken a little bit longer and and definitely haven't seen the same sort of viral um, growth as crypto art, just because crypto art is such a simple value proposition. It's just you know, it's so simple to just kind of go and tokenize your work and then start selling it to your fans. And I think that has really had this compelling like flywheel effect for that space. Um, and so I, I, I agree with you that I think like crypto art is really the um, like leader and the, the I guess what you would kind of call the killer app for NFTs. Um, but I do think that these virtual world projects are um, are highly complementary to crypto art. So they give you a venue for displaying and appreciating crypto art um mm. and they just take a they've taken a little bit longer to develop but they do have very rich and vibrant communities around them that are starting to really like emerge and grow um so th that would be probably my like uh you know second um area to really keep a close eye on for sure couldn't agree more that's definitely the one uh, that i'm most excited about as well um you know at least in the in the sort of medium long term to see where all that stuff goes on the topic of gaming is there anything kind of uh, non-obvious but interesting that we should be paying paying attention to there um you know how are kind of teams approaching extending the core utility of nfts within their game ecosystems and so on yeah i think there's still a really big opportunity in gaming that um has been explored but not like has not fully been cracked, I, I would say, of like these interoper highly interoperable um, games that are based on existing NFTs. So Neon District has done a lot of really interesting work in this area where um, they've created a game um, called Metaboss that was entirely based on the ownership of existing NFTs. Um, now, I think the things that are potentially holding back those ideas is just sort of maturation of the market and um, general like usability of NFTs, right? To, to uh, have these sorts of interoperable experiences, it really does need to feel like super simple to say, you know, I own these five NFTs, bring that into another app and use it in another use case. And it's not, it's just not quite there yet. Um, mm -hmm. And then also like the, um, I think, a few more iterations on like what I, what actually should those second layer experiences look like that will really engage existing NFT holders. So I think there's a lot of like kind of unexplored or underexplored um, uh, ideas there that, um, you know, maybe it'll take a couple more iterations and maybe it even requires, um, you know, a higher throughput chain than Ethereum to really support in interesting ways. I think that's kind of the vision of the flow team, right, is mm. build a, a brand new blockchain that's really crafted around this NFT use case and then um, have this sort of ecosystem where developers can build interesting things on top of other applications. Um, so I'm not sure when that will happen, but I think if you're sort of a new developer in the space, um, doing that in a really cracking that and, and doing it in a way that um, 
is exciting for end users of NFTs uh, is is a is still a really big opportunity. For sure, <clears throat> it's interesting you touch upon uh, alternative sort of you know purpose built blockchains. There, I'm curious um, how you and the team kind of approach these competing non fungible token standards. You know, like sort of D goods on EOS or, or Flow with their NFT standard coming up. Yeah, so we um, we're definitely really excited about other layer twos and layer ones that um, allow for higher throughput trading environments for NFT. So so we're super excited about kind of what's being worked on with Flow. Um, we've uh, you know we're in close contact with that team and we've actually started um, you know the early stages of uh, Flow integration, um, but probably still a little ways off. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how everything plays out. And I would say it's not as much for us, it's not as much about standards, but it's more around like, um, will the next generation of blockchains that are compelling for NFT use, will those look a lot like Ethereum um, and Ethereum ERC721, 1155? Or will they look more like something completely new, like Flow, right? And I think there's strong cases to be made for for both, right? There's the sort of tooling case to be made for um, for using the EVM and using sort of Ethereum tools like MetaMask because you already have developers who are used to that, you have users who are used to that, um, and so I think there's definitely something to be said for chains that go the sort of backwards compatibility route. Um, on the other hand, there's a lot to be said for chains that sort of start fresh, right? Like Flow can, because it's not wedded to the EVM, they can just do a lot of things over in a better way um, that uh, doesn't require sort of conforming to a lot of these nuances of how Ethereum happened to be built. Um, and uh, I think it's just, you know, probably the most the most likely outcome is that uh, you know, all of these are successful, but for different use cases, right? So maybe Flow becomes really successful for um, a certain set of developers and a certain set of games, and, and they have this sort of ecosystem there. But then there's also this sort of more grassroots ecosystem that emerges from Ethereum. Um, but, you know, it's just such early days, um, and, and we're excited to see the general growth of the space. Mm, all remains to be seen. I, uh... I'm just concerned that it fractures, you know, a still nascent space too early. Um, but uh, I guess time will tell. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, so as the man who wrote the uh, NFT Bible, which I'll link in the show notes, if anyone listening hasn't read, it's well worth it. Um, what are the most exciting roles you see NFTs ultimately playing in our digital experience? And this can be medium to long term. Yeah, well, I think um, one really exciting role is I think when you look at the NFT space, um, you start to see all of these like jobs of the future emerge, right? Um, there, I think when people talked about um, or continue to talk about this idea that um, you know AI is going to take all of our jobs, and there's sort of two reactions to that. One is okay, like we're all doomed. Um, the other is that new jobs will emerge. Um, and when people talk about that, that second scenario, like a lot of the jobs they talk about are like virtual reality artist or like a realist digital real estate agent. And the funny thing is that these are sort of the jobs that are emerging in the NFT space, right? There's people who are, mm. um, who are trading digital real estate. And, you know, we even talked to a guy who's like an expert on Decentraland real estate because we were looking to buy some Decentraland land. Um, and, you know, that was kind of like his, you know, that's basically become his, yeah. his full-time gig, right? Um, and and then we've we've talked to artists who have quit their jobs as, um, uh, you know, in the service industry to go and be a full-time digital artist selling digital art. Um, you know, we've, we've now seen several large-scale digital art sales in the space. Um, so I think what's really exciting is that finally, like a lot more of the value of digital experiences can be captured by the people who are contributing the most, right? I think, um, you know, one of the largest critiques with something like a platform like Facebook or Instagram is that while, while it is possible to make 
some money um, as an Instagram influencer or YouTube star, the most of the value captured um, from the the things that people are contributing on those platforms is captured by the company itself through the form of advertisement, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas NFTs completely shift that, right? Um, there's this, you know, native uh, transactional layer built into the social experience um, that allows people to really capture a lot more of the value uh, versus the platform um, mm-hmm. sort of developing this this monopolistic behavior. Um, so I think that's that's one of the areas that I'm really excited about is people having brand new jobs uh, in these digital worlds because you finally have the open economy to support it. Now, obviously, mm. that's, you know, uh, this would classify as the sort of long-term view, but um, what's exciting is that it it is happening on a micro scale already. Um, and so it's it's exciting to get a taste of that by talking to people who are deeply involved in this space. Mm. It's undeniably a much more uh, direct and elegant monetization mechanism for anything, you know, uh, related to pretty much any creative endeavor, uh, which is super neat. I also think, um, did you read that piece on why all digital content is going on chain uh, by uh, Jake from CoinFund? Because that was also interesting, uh, with the concept of liquid IP and stuff and where actually how the kind of nature of digital media might be changing with it too. Yeah, um, yeah I think I saw that. Um, if not, I'll have to check it out again. Yeah, I'll, I'll shoot it over. Um, all right, now my favorite question: To what extent do you subscribe to this idea of a metaverse? <laughs> um, I don't know if I have a great answer. To that I haven't thought about my perspective on the idea of the metaverse. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I I don't know like the formal definition of a metaverse and all that. So, uh, but I'll just kind of riff on that general topic, I suppose. Um, I I can give you a form a more formal oh, sure. definition yeah. if you want, but uh, sure. yeah, I mean. Uh, as, as I define it, at least have done in this podcast, it's uh, along the lines of, you know, this sort of extensive virtual world where anyone can kind of um, live, work and play, I suppose, and kind of participate in an economy with societal impact. Mm-hmm. Um, the last part, again, I would say borrow that directly from Tim Sweeney because he says, you know, this thing needs to be a, a, a serious leg up from a, a sort of successor to lots of uh, forms of communication media that came before it. This uh-huh. isn't just an incremental improvement, you know, this is on like the 30, 50 year horizon where this thing is like a huge global economy that people partake in online. Yeah, I would say that I subscribe to that idea to some extent. I, I just maybe the sort of question marks in my mind is like, how much will this look like sort of a unified platform where or like or something, you know, I think when when we envision the metaverse, we think of something like Ready Player One where like you know, you're mm. walking around this virtual world and everyone's sort of in the same virtual world in some ways. I guess I'm just not sure that it'll look like that, right? Like sure. you know, it could look like something where there's lots of different virtual worlds. And, you know, you can make the argument that we sort of already have some of the beginnings of a metaverse through mm-hmm. social networks, through different games like Fortnite, um, you know, through through a lot of these sort of early platforms. And so I could see like, you know, more of those platforms just becoming more and more rich experiences. You add like more and more sophisticated VR experience to these things. Um, so the only thing that I, you know, have maybe doubts about is whether it's like this one single um, uh, experience that everyone's plugging into. Um, but, you know, maybe an interesting kind of like other other view of this is maybe it's a, maybe it's the same like, experience um but people are viewing it in different ways so one of the really cool things about blockchain games is like you could create a smart contract um that represents like a breeding game but you can have many different clients that interact mm-hmm. with that logic so you could, like someone could be playing like a uh crypto kitty breeding game the other person could be playing like i don't know crypto zombies or like something else right and it's it's, it's absolutely kind of yeah logic layer so maybe maybe there's something kind of interesting there um, I, I think that's a, a neat idea, especially when it comes to the virtual world stuff. I've touched upon this before, but, um, you know, also in terms of being able to accommodate a much broader spectrum of uh, graphical capabilities, for example. So, like, anyone from any device can access it because you can either load in through this super low poly game client or this insane, you know, UE5 ray traced awesome version of uh, whichever respective world you're looking at. I love that idea and suspect it's probably uh, much more sort of closer to what we're likely to see. Um, 
but yeah, in, in, interesting ideas. Um, what is one thing that's become clear to you since you embarked on your whole uh, crypto journey that you wish you'd known before? Um, I think one thing is um, there's sort of that uh, famous saying that like thing people overestimate how quickly things will happen, but then underestimate like how big the impact mm-hmm. will be. I think definitely like a lot of when we first started, we overestimated how fast things would happen. Um, and so I think, you know, we could have been a little more like deliberate, a little more um, patient and a little less like um, uh, frantic, I suppose, about about uh, launching something when, you know, it's really like the early days of uh, crypto and, and you can be a little more methodical about it. It's not, you know, I think we kind of um, had the, misinterpretation of this crypto kitty space that it was sort of like this gold rush like you know this was the mm. we needed to like go to market as quickly as possible and i think there there's there's definitely value in that um there's there's extreme value in building like a product and launching it and getting user feedback don't get me wrong um but i think uh you know there i think that that uh saying is really true that we tend to see these like trends emerge and then think they're going to happen um, overnight um, when really like, you know, it takes a lot longer for them to evolve. And I think we've, we've definitely like shifted towards that mentality uh, at OpenSea as we've seen the, the space progress. And now what's exciting is that, um, you know, after the several years of development, we really are starting to see that um, bending of the growth curve and uh, mm. you know, really exciting interest around the space. Um, so uh, you know, I, I think maybe that's that's one thing. Sure, that's really interesting. I'm glad you guys, uh, yeah, I suppose took the time and kind of found your rhythm because, as you say, a lot of it is this kind of frantic uh, scrabbling to build stuff. We see, I mean, especially obviously with DeFi this summer, all kinds of stuff popping up left, right, and center. But yeah. I think, yeah, to to get the head down and be focused on the sort of longer goal and and, and just pursue that is uh, really interesting. Um, Heading into the kind of closing questions now, uh, what do you see as the primary path to adoption for NFTs? I think crypto art is definitely the, an area where um, we'll continue to see really exciting growth. Um, I think there's all of the ingredients for a really strong flywheel, right? So artists come create NFTs, share them. That brings in new collectors, some of those folks know artists or are artists and they start creating things. And eventually there becomes this sort of um, flywheel effect where it just makes sense for someone who's creative to do it as an NFT. And it's easy enough that they that they can. Um, I think there's an interesting Twitter thread from Jesse Walden about sort of nailing the social layer for this. I think if, um, you know, if we can make it so that uh, owning an NFT really does mean something in a social context, which it does to some extent right now, but it's it's not as rich of a social experience as it could be. Um, I think that's going to really drive up the demand for these new digital assets and um, really get that flywheel going. Um, so I do think that uh, crypto art um, uh, will be one of these things that drives further adoption. Um, that being said, I do think that there is a risk that um, we see sort of uh, high inflation of uh, NFTs uh, in the mm-hmm. run, right? Where, um, and we've already sort of started to see this, uh, you know, there's now platforms where you can easily mint, um, you can do that on OpenSea. And um, uh, so then sort of what what will determine whether something's actually valuable or not. Um, and I think for that to be the case, you know, we just need more infrastructure around like um, places that you can display your NFTs, uh, sites that, you know, like ours that um, sort of trace the provenance of an NFT. So you know that this is actually like one of the originals that was minted by, you know, XYZ mm-hmm. artist, right? Um, so I do think in the short run, there's this risk that there'll just be so much supply that people will be a little bit overwhelmed and maybe it takes another few cycles for um, things to come around and, and really like work well. Sure. It does feel um, 
a little bit like enthusiasm's been a bit overcooked lately, but uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, let's see what comes. So obviously in the art world, we're beginning to see this really smooth and direct monetization mechanism for artists. Um, in the gaming land, we're beginning to see stuff like crypto voxels emerge where the game's financed by auctioning off scarce virtual real estate. In games like Axie, we're seeing the games gravitate towards extracting fees from um, different parts of gameplay. So, you know, breeding, battling and so on. Um, what new business models do you see being unlocked here that you think uh, will eventually sort of dominate? Yeah, I think the fee-based business model is still pretty compelling, right? Like if you can create a big economy with uh, a lot of uh, liquidity and a lot of uh, people transacting and a lot of participants, um, I think it's perfectly reasonable for, um, you know, some layer of the stack to take a fee. Um, I don't think that um, like crypto is sort of, uh, I don't think that zero fees is sort of like an, inherent ingredient of a crypto network, right? I think that um, mm -hmm. your business model can actually look rather traditional, um, but sort of the things that you enable through it are you know, completely new and novel. Um, that being said, I think there are a lot of other creative business models as well, uh, you know, particularly for marketplaces. Um, there's this idea that, you know, market uh, one of the roles of a marketplace is to provide discovery. So, you know, allowing people to promote their listings and, and get them more easily discovered by paying a little bit of extra. Um, you know, there's obviously like subscription models. Um, but I do think that transaction fees, at least in the short run, um, have been working pretty well. And I think um, users are, you know, maybe there are some users who, you know, think that fees should be zero. Um, but for the most part, like, I think people are comfortable paying the uh, platform that provides them this service of of matching buyers and sellers. Um, and then the other exciting thing is that um, those business models can really align with the creators, right? So um, mm -hmm. now a creator, uh, for example, on OpenSea, um, if you create a, a storefront, if you're a game, an artist, or just someone building some sort of NFT, you can set a secondary sale fee so that every time your items sell, you also get a percentage of that. And that, I think, um, really aligns the incentive mm -hmm. of the person creating the storefront with the marketplace. Absolutely. And also you touched even upon in the fee-based models where we're starting to see a portion of those fees go towards a community treasury, which also, you know, there's a governance token that people can also buy into. That's another dimension of, of, of sort of uh, alignment there that uh, also seems to be uh, working okay for now. Um, you mentioned that you guys actually, um, you know, looked at acquiring some Decentraland land. Um, in terms of sort of investable surface area and different types of NFTs, what do you personally find the most compelling and why? I think virtual land is really compelling because um, it is, uh, it, it's really like this utility layer um, for NFTs. Um, I think there's this, um, I, I think there is a really compelling vision around a virtual world gathering network effects so that lots of people want to integrate with it. I think we're starting to see this a little bit with Decentraland and CryptoVoxels where like, there's these really vibrant communities who are building things inside of those virtual worlds. And like they're sort of these foundational platforms. Um, so I think if you buy that vision, then I think, um, virtual land is, is probably the one that I would, uh, that I'm most excited about. Um, the other ones are, uh, I think domain names. So like Ethereum name service and, um, unstoppable domains, in my opinion, like those are another candidate for sort of a foundational layer and they're already being used, um, to some extent, right? Like you can, um, you can send, ETH and NFTs to people using these human readable addresses. It's just that, um, you know, I think there needs to be a little bit more adoption and a little more usability of them. Um, mm. But I think that those are sort of the, you know, basically the domain names of the decentralized world and owning a, um, you know, a, a one word uh, top level domain, a popular one word top level domain would have been a, a really good investment. Um, you know, back before the dot-com boom. So I, I think there's a case to be made for those as well. Um, and yeah, I think those are the main ones that I would highlight. 
Interesting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely excited on the domain front. Um, I've scooped up a few, but they're uh, in disuse for the time being. Um, stepping away from all the fun crypto stuff now for for a while. Um, what is your favorite video game ever? Favorite video game ever. Um, let's see. Damn, I was expecting this to be rehearsed. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. I, I did see it, and then but I wasn't sure. Uh, so um, the I really liked The Sims when I was growing up. Um, uh, yeah, I thought it was. I, I liked all of the different um, Sims games, like um, Sim Tower. There's actually, actually, maybe here's my answer, which is kind of like just to be a little bit off the wall. Like, there's a game called uh, Sim Ant where you would. Are you familiar with the Sims games? I'm very familiar with the Sims yeah. games, not Sims Ant, though. I must yeah. admit, that's the one that I don't think I've ever met anyone else who knows about it. Um, but it was basically like, yeah, ants where you could go and um, like you were either the red ants or the black ants and you had to go and um, like, I think the objective was to kill the queen of the other uh, opposing ants. Um, and there were, there was just a lot of really interesting stuff. Like you, um, uh, you had to like harvest food. There were spiders that you had to kill. Um, and I, I played a lot of that as a kid. I don't know if it was actually, it was probably maybe a little bit less sophisticated than like Sim Tower, Sim City, all these other things, but it was definitely one of the ones that got me pretty like it, excited. It sounds really cool though, building and managing an ant colony uh, yeah. with their various pursuits. It sounds yeah. fun. Um, uh, what is the most impactful digital experience you've ever had? This one, I'll be shocked if it was in the ant simulator. <laughs> um, well, recently, I think, um, actually, I'll, I'll go with, so I think, trying um the oculus quest for the first time or, or going through the tutorial for the oculus quest was actually really mm. compelling for me so um i thought they it was just very impressive um how they had taken these like ingredients for vr and really productionized them and made them compelling as like a as a user right so this idea or you know this whole flow of like you put on the headset it walks you through creating this play area for you to interact with VR. Mm -hmm. And so you get to like draw it out. So they've obviously used like um, machine learning and computer vision to, you know, figure out your surroundings. Um, and then they have these controllers that they teach you how to, how to use them through this really like nice onboarding flow. Um, so I was really impressed with that. Like it, it was just like, you know, is this feeling that maybe VR is not quite like, I, I don't know where VR at, is at in terms of like kind of the adoption cycle, but it felt like it was really here in some capacity and like usable for like a regular person. So I thought, I thought that was exciting. And then also the kind of like additions that um, the Quest have has added over time. Like one day they introduced hand tracking and like mm. suddenly you could use your hands to like interact with your virtual world, right? And, and I thought they've just like done that in a really good way so absolutely interestingly that isn't the first time in fact it might even be the third time we've had that answer on here oh, really? which is a, a very good sign because most people remain you know skeptical from afar uh you know benedict evans wrote that vr winter piece and so on which most people seem to uh defer to but um i'm strongly of the view that anytime i have a friend round and plunk them in uh, my quest too it's you know it's a game changer everyone even if they don't like gaming or whatever they're like damn this is this is good this is interesting yeah and i think you're quite right on the point of introducing new features the hand tracking was cool there was a way to access that before it was out but um mm -hmm. you know like late last year the facebook research team shipped a software update that was like a 30 percent performance boost on fps across like most things like that kind of stuff's pretty incredible to be seeing uh happening so yeah yeah um cautiously optimistic about all of that don't want to get ahead of myself though um but yeah um finally out of all the books you've ever read which one has resonated with you the most it's hard to say i think i i'll just pick an example like from a recent book that i read that resonated with me so i don't know if this is like the the one that has resonated the most mm -hmm. over my entire life but um i recently read uh waking up by sam harris i i I definitely recommend that for anyone who has sort of uh, like dabbled with meditation or mindfulness. Um, I thought it a lot of the experiences that he talks about really resonated with me. Um, like 
some of some of the very specific experiences he had um, were a lot were similar to experiences I had. Um, and then I think he takes probably the most sort of logical, rational approach to mindfulness uh, that that's not uh, so logical and rational, but not sort of like overly scientific, right? So there are a lot of other books um, that are great, like Why Buddhism is True, that talk about sort of the um, scientific angle to mindfulness and meditation. Um, but I think Sam Harris does it in sort of this way that talks about like why uh, these things are valuable and why you can sort of realize them through experience and how you can incorporate them into your life and a path to get there. Um, that's just a lot more down to earth than um, some of the sort of more spiritual books and then a lot more like practical than some of the more scientific books on the subject matter. Um, so I think, you know, I, I, I think one of the things you kind of learn as a founder and just as, you know, as you get deeper and deeper into your career is how important your like mental health and your mind is in, uh, you know, doing all the things that you do day to day. And so I think, um, this was, that was a book that really like helped me sort of cultivate that skill. Um, uh, so I definitely recommend it for people who are kind of interested in that territory. That's really interesting. I'll, uh, I'll definitely check it out. I, um, I'm not great on that whole side of things. Uh, a, a few of the guys I work with really are though. Jose in particular has uh, opened my eyes to some of the stuff that, that lies behind those curtains, even down to like the, some of the, you know, Wim Hof breath work and stuff and the, the way it can dramatically change your uh, mental state in a, in a small period. Like um, definitely uh, interesting uncharted territory for me. So I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm mindful you've only, only got the hour slot. I, uh, appreciate you coming on, sharing, uh, sort of some commentary from where you guys are at and what you've been doing and, uh, very excited to see where OpenSea goes. Big fan of what you guys are doing. Um, for those listening, where should they go to follow you and the updates about the company? Sure. Yeah. So our Twitter is OpenSea, um, and then my Twitter is Defenser. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Devin. Thanks so much for having me.